Blog Talk Radio. online at chickenwhisperer.com where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Combach Feeds. At Combach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, Our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Sweet PDZ has been keeping horse stalls ammonia-free and healthy for nearly 33 years. However, ammonia is ammonia, regardless of the species producing it. Therefore, it will do the same great job in your chicken coops and brooders. Sweet PDZ safeguards flock health by neutralizing and eliminating harmful levels of ammonia and odors. Safe and effective moisture absorption. All-natural, non-toxic, premium-grade zeolite mineral. Contains no masking scents or chemical perfumes. Safe and beneficial to dispose with waste on compost and gardens. Learn more at SweetPDZ.com. That's SweetPDZ.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. 
ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Actually, in reality, I am Super Chicken. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All right, thank you very much for staying on the Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Mr. Weeds. And, uh, wow, this season, where does the time go? 2018 is literally right around corner, uh, which means, in fact, let me head over to Amazon real quick and see if they have any updated dates on when they'll be having consumers around December 26th, so the day after Christmas, so you could actually buy this as, I guess, a Christmas gift for that chicken lover in your life, and uh, print off the uh, cover of the book, and uh, put it in their stocking, I guess you could do that, but it, it fluctuated from... Uh, December 17th or 18th, we've been seeing some for early January, and now they're saying December 26th, and um, but it is now available for pre-order on Amazon, Chicken Fact, our Chicken Food, the Chicken Whisperer's Guide to the Fact and Fictions You Need to Know, Keep Your Flock Healthy and Happy, Maurice Hesky, and we've got a great topic lined up for today, we're going to be talking about incubation and chick rearing, maybe even a little bit of Incubation breeding, but it could be incubation is a really, really an art. In the first book called the whole chapter is called the art of incubation, and um, it can get as detailed and science-filled as you want it to be, or you can kind of just take the road of you know the hen does it out there in the coop with uh, you know pretty much basics of nothing and. Uh, except for what they're weird to do. And and I've seen uh, hens successfully uh, hatch and brood all year round, even in the cold winter months. You would think that, you would think that they would um, be, uh, you know, maybe 
wait towards spring, but and they've they've I've seen them successfully uh, hatch baby chicks even the cold month of February, and it's just wow how crazy is that when we're looking at incubators and exact temperatures and exact humidity and 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 then having this fancy brooder and things like that and they're out in this coop non non heated coop uh, rearing their babies just fine like they've done for the last roughly eight thousand years since they were domesticated, but it can get very science-specific. Um, a lot of folks that do this a lot, uh, when we talk about incubation, you know, you know oh, it's 99.5 degrees is where you want your incubator set. And I think a lot of the automatic thermostat incubators now come set very set at 100. Uh, there's some science behind that, for example, as you want the inside of the egg to be 100. So if the out inside of the incubator is 99, or uh, I'm sorry, you want the inside of the egg to be 99.5. So in their science of shipping the incubator, where it's preset at 100, uh, inside the incubator it's 100. So inside the shell would then be, of course, 99.5. So the science behind that, you've got people that have incubated for years and years and years, and they like, well, I like to have my, I have the most success when my incubator set it. 99.75938.875. And they get all technical with what they've uh, had success with their hatch, um, to humidity, and that, that especially here in the South. But that's one of the biggest challenges I see on a lot of blogs and forums and elsewhere. And I hear from people about maintaining that humidity, um, 45 to 55% for the first, I think it is 18 days, and then up, upping that for the last three days until they hatch to 55 to 65%, numbers you see across the board and, and the textbooks and whatnot. Um, and then when I visited um, Ideal Poultry out in Cameron, Texas, who actually ships more baby chicks? Oh my gosh, they they ship out about six million a year. So you know how many they're hatching? Maybe close to double of that because of the male chicks that that nobody wants. But they uh, and and you know looking through and walking in their hatchery and their incubators and their hatchers and and just looking at the digital readouts and um, what do they have there? I mean here they are, you know, selling six shipping six million chicks or more every year. 99.5 degrees uh, are their incubators there. So uh, it can get very scientific. It can be laid back. It can be uh, very stressful for a lot of folks. Uh, I hear a lot, of, I'm pulling my hair out. I can't maintain this humidity. Or uh, that they've, you know, that's it's day 22, day 23, nothing's hatched yet. Or, you know, all I've hatched but about six. And it's, it's day 22, 23. How long do I wait before I discard these eggs? So it's going to be uh, kind of uh, stressful for a lot of folks, especially the uh, newbies. A lot of people don't start with incubation. They start with buying the chicks online or from their local feed and seed store. But they, uh, we find that sooner than, <coughs> sooner than later, and sometimes sooner than later, they will actually uh, – Pardon me. They will actually dive into this, and um, it'll be uh, sometimes very challenging uh, for them. So uh, pretty interesting, and uh, that's what our topic is for today. Let me get over here to the switchboard, and we will bring on my good friend, Dr. Maurice Pateski, who's going to educate us all on the ins and outs, I guess, of a little bit of incubation and chick rearing, maybe a little bit about uh, brooders and that all tricky humidity that we try to strive for. And look, uh, Jen was a teacher for 10 years in the classroom, and we've had you know, four and five incubators going on at one time, different style incubators from still air 
to ones that have fans, to the fully automatic digital ones, to the old-fashioned wafer thermostats, to, I mean, we've done it all. We've had turners. We've not had turners. I mean, anything, any kind of experiment, um, we've actually tried in her school for years, I mean, decades. And um, it, it is interesting. The uh, uh, I remember we had one that she, when she had the oldest incubator that we had, no turner, they turned it, you know, three to five times while they were in school hours, didn't turn it overnight, didn't turn it on the weekends, still had a quote-unquote somewhat successful hatch. So um, pretty interesting there. But, um, hey, let's get over to the uh, to uh, Dr. Teske. Doc, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays to you, too. Looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, tell us tell us what you know. I know it can be very stressful some some folks, and it can be sometimes challenging. And it is an art for Anna science, and you can take it as sciencey if you will as you want, and you can be as laid back I think sometimes as you want, and and then you can just have you know broody mama out in the hen house uh, handle their hat. So there's a lot of different choices, but we want to hear kind of the the basics and kind of the rule of thumb from you, my friend. Yeah, well, first of all, Andy, I, I, I'm, I have to apologize. I thought we were talking about kind of management and husbandry today. So I'm going to try to tweak things to that because I didn't prepare for, for brooding. And I, I want to make sure if I give that talk that I that have all my numbers in front of me, I apologize. That's um, fine. We don't have to do but, brooding. But I'll try fine. to sure, tweak it no toward. Yeah, but but, but a lot of the, the management considerations when we think about coop design and construction um, are, are, are very similar in, in that we want, obviously, um, appropriate temperatures and lighting and humidity and heat. So um, I really apologize that, that I, 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 I prepared for the wrong presentation, but I'll, I'll, I can give that one next time and we can, we can, we can do that. So my apologies on well, my that's end. Fine. No, that's not a problem. Just like incubation, we can be as structured and as laid back as we want to be here on this podcast. Okay. So even if, even if we wanted to talk about um, uh, anything else, that's perfectly fine, too. I'm sure our listeners uh, have no problems. And I can always go back and change the topic in the uh, text for when it actually okay. gets published. Later. Okay. That's perfectly fine. So we'll let Perfect. you roll with what you were going to your topic. Go ahead. That's great. Good. Well, my apologies one more time. And and I think to to your no point, though, I think there's a really um, – it is interesting. You have the, you know, the scientists, and then you have the people that are the artists. Um, and I always uh, – <clears throat> you know, when you look – for example, when you talk to food scientists, I always thought it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, making cheese or something like that, and they look at pHs and temperatures and different microbial starter cultures. And then you look at the farmer who just makes the cheese in their bathtub, and there's, you know, a little quote-unquote <laughs> dirt in there. And I, I, I think we all know which one tastes better. So, um, you know, there is something to be said for the uh, kind of that interface of art and science. We want some science um, in this, but there's also um, a lot of creativity and, and art in this, and, and we want to encourage people um, when appropriate to be creative and, and not, not always be cookie cutters. So there's real value in that, and I, I, I encourage people to – we don't always want to reinvent the wheel, but there's some really, especially when it comes to, to backyard poultry and pasture and free range, there's some really creative people out there. So um, I always don't want people to kind of think, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do what the university or the scientists uh, tell me to do, because a lot of the times, while that might sound reasonable, um, sometimes the best results are, are when people really start kind of pushing the envelope and get, getting creative, especially um, in backyard poultry, because we just don't know that much. We really try to take a lot of the uh, conventional 
um, information and, and try to kind of take that square peg and put it in a round hole. And, and as we all know, that doesn't always work. So um, I really mm-hmm. encourage people to be creative and, and, and to kind of uh, reach out to the universities and, and other folks about your ideas because um, it's, it's, I, it's always really interesting talking to people who maybe don't have that formal background or training but are really smart um, those people usually have some of the most creative and interesting ideas because they haven't been uh, beaten down by the uh, you know kind of dogma of uh, of academia. So I, mm-hmm. I encourage mm-hmm. people to be creative. But so what I wanted to talk about um, was um, some of the management considerations because I, I think we end up having all these a lot of talks about nutrition or biosecurity or food safety or disease or welfare, and at the end of the day, all those are outcomes from how from the the environment uh from the coop that your your birds are in so at the end of the day when you really think about it um if you can design um and have a well-designed coop and area around that coop that's probably the best way to address all those topics kind of in in one fair swoop so um when you think about you know just going to that 10,000 foot view um, that I like so much, when you think the big picture about what you're really trying to focus on, you really want to focus on feed, light, air, water, space, and sanitation. So those are the, the six things you really want to focus on. So when you're, when you're in your coop every day and when you're a commercial poultry vet, um, you know, when you walk onto a farm, you, you really want to kind of focus on those and then assess the birds. But um, if the birds are sick or the birds are not sick, it, it typically 99 out of 100 times, it's going to be because of one of those six, six things, feed, light, air, water, space, and sanitation. So, again, that, that, you know, let's, let, let's keep this at, at, a, at a general perspective and then kind of work our way um, into some of those details. And, you know, as a, as a veterinarian and as an epidemiologist, I'm really keen on collecting some data um, from a practical perspective. And, and we've talked about this in the past, but um, the only way you're going to kind of notice abnormal is if you know what normal is. And the only way you can know what normal really is is, is, is planning and, um, and, and record keeping. And I know this is not always the most exciting thing, but um, it can't, I can't reiterate how fundamental that is toward um, having a healthy flock um, so some of the basic things, just understanding um, the source of your birds and having records of the source of your birds. Hopefully they're from a hatchery that um, is part of the MPIP um, because, as, as everyone hopefully on the radio show knows, um, if your chicks are from uh, hatcheries that are certified by the National Poultry Improvement Program, then there are certain um, expectations about how those chicks were um, were, were, were raised um, and how those eggs were incubated, uh, what type of biosecurity procedures they were using, what types of uh, disease surveillance they did. So nothing's perfect, obviously, so not all diseases can be uh, surveilled for, but um, you're getting a, a high degree of, um, of certainty that those chicks were raised under the best possible conditions um, to reduce any kind of uh, disease-type issues, and you're, you're giving those chicks kind of a head start. Um, so keep records of those. Um, and then you also want to describe your feeding program. So what feed are you using? Um, are you using organic? Are you using conventional? Are you using a chick starter feed, hopefully, and then switching to um, either a pellet or a crumble uh, once those birds are a little older, which we'll talk about in a few minutes? 
Um, are you using oyster shell um, as the equivalent of uh, extra additional calcium? Um, all those things should really be recorded um, at some level, and you can get pretty, you know, quote-unquote nerdy about this, and you can really start seeing, okay, how much feed are my birds eating? Do they eat more if I give them a crumble, or do they eat more if I give them a pellet? In general, they'll eat a little more if you give them a pellet, um, and, and I per prefer pellets um, in adult uh, layer feed because it's easier to clean. It doesn't make as much of a mess, but um, some people do like crumbles um, in part because um, in the conventional world they'll usually eat a little less crumble, and the crumble kind of keeps them occupied. So I've, I've heard some people kind of almost refer to the crumbled feed as almost like an enrichment um, because it, it, it keeps them a little more occupied than, than the pelleted feed. My preference is, is the pelleted feed because, as I, I said earlier, I think it's easier to clean up, and I really worry about rodents and disease transmission. So um, if you are kind of um, very fastidious about your coop and you, you don't have any spilled feed, and any time you see any spilled feed, uh, like crumble from a feeder, if you're really good about cleaning that up, then, then I would uh, uh, agree then that you can use a crumble. But if you have, you know, a, a, a life and all the other things that go along with that and you can't always clean things up as well, uh, pelleted feeds might be a little easier. So, it's, But you can experiment with them from flock to flock. And, in fact, that's kind of what the commercial poultry industry will do. They'll, they'll try different feeds, um, different rations slightly within the confines of, of what the recommendations are, um, but they'll fiddle with those things and, and kind of see – um, what their production is. They'll see what their mortality is. They'll see what their morbidity or their sickness levels are and try to optimize those um, because it's obviously in the best interest of the farmer to have healthy birds that are, that are productive and, 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 and healthy and, and not having any disease problems, for example. So measuring that feed consumption by days and weeks, knowing how many bags of feed you're going through, um, and you can you can extrapolate that to you know how many grams of feed your birds are getting per per day, and that's always an interesting calculation to make, and you know kind of a fun thing to do I think with students um, and with kids and with grown-ups alike. Um, keeping track of any type of lighting schedule you're doing is really important. So um, making sure that you're um, measuring that if you're doing that. Um, there are a lot of people that don't do lighting. Um, with mixed success, and, and I mean measuring success by egg production. Um, so if you're most backyard poultry owners, you know, obviously they're, they're pets um, along with, um, you know, this added benefit of this, you know, this amazing protein we get almost, you know, four or five times a week. Um, if you want to increase their production potentially, especially this time of year, um, adding supplemental light. Um, is very beneficial, and you can imagine we could do a whole show on, on lighting, which I think would actually be really fascinating. Um, but you can do you can use lighting in all kinds of creative ways um, in order to a increase production um, and b um, to make sure you have fewer floor eggs. Um, so floor eggs are, are what the definition says; those are the eggs that that, that don't go in the nest box, and that's a, a big problem. So you get a lot of floor eggs for a lot of reasons. Um, primarily, the dogma is right now you get floor eggs because of genetics. But you do get floor eggs because of poor husbandry practices. And if you have a kind of a light um, in the nest box or that's attracting the birds to the nest box, that's a good way to drive the birds toward the next box, nest box in the morning um, so they'll actually utilize the nest box. So lighting can be a really interesting thing to kind of explore. And, and like I said, we could probably do a whole show on lighting in backyard flocks and what the basics are and, and how to get a lux meter and measuring uh, foot candles and um, going over 
you know, how much light they truly get outside versus how much light they might, how much supplemental light they need. But keeping track of that is actually really easy now. There's some great websites that at your uh, specific latitude, you can type in uh, specifically where you are, and it'll tell you how much light your birds are getting per day. And the dogma is the birds need roughly 14 to 16 hours of light a day. Um, so you can start figuring out, hey, my birds are only getting 12 um, hours of light, and I'm only getting three eggs a week right now, or two eggs a week, and I used to get four or five eggs a week. Um, so you can start kind of looking into that um, type issue, which is really interesting. Um, and then you also want to try to measure body weight. Um, we've talked about this in the past, but um, it's good to kind of understand, you know, how heavy your birds are and to see those curves. And again, this is a great thing to do with kids. Um, really interesting just so they can see kind of what their development is and then measuring mortality and things like that. So, I, again, this feed, water, air, um, space, and sanitation issue is, is so uh, fundamental, and, and you can't really assess those things until you really start collecting some data. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, is understanding their space requirements. Um, so when you look at the conventional world, the space requirements are much smaller, and there's reasons that's so. Um, and then you look in the backyard world, and it's really all over the place. But I would say at the minimum, when you think about the space requirements that your birds need, um, on the inside of the coop, you want those birds to have a minimum of one and a half um, square feet per bird. And on the outside of the coop, you want them to have a minimum of two square feet per bird. And those numbers are not really based on a lot of science. Um, there are some uh, auditing uh, agencies that will audit kind of the conventional or the non-conventional pastured and free-range systems. And those numbers I pulled out there are probably the minimums from some of the auditing um, agencies that they, they, they're not probably, they are the minimum space requirements. So I think I use those as kind of a general recommendation. Some people, especially in kind of urban areas, um, they want to know, I'll, I'll get that phone call or, or that email where they want to know what's the, the minimum space requirements I, I need because I'm in, you know, the middle of Los Angeles or New York City or something like that, and we want to have some backyard chickens, and they, they're trying to calculate, you know, what they can actually pull off with the space issues that they have. Um, so those are really important. And then, um, you know, kind of thinking about um, – Kind of thinking about feeders, just kind of going down the list. So feed is really fundamental, right? We're not going to have eggs. Um, you know, we all know this without feed. And that links to water. So birds don't eat if they don't drink. So the most important thing in this kind of feed-water relationship is you always want to have water available 24-7. That is, that is fundamental, um, indoors and outdoors, so in your coop and outside of your coop. Um, how you give that water doesn't really matter, um, in my opinion. If you use nipple drinkers or pans or bells, the most important thing is you want to keep them clean. Um, so whatever you can do to keep them clean. Um, in chicks, it is really important to make sure that the water is um, not only clean, because chicks can, can get an infectious disease in water at a much lower level of bacteria, let's say E. coli, for example, than an adult can, because their GI tract is still seeding with bacteria and they're trying to kind of establish those beneficial bacteria. Um, so it's really important to have clean drinkers. And the other thing with chicks, um, chicks are, are very cute, obviously, um, but they're not always the smartest. Um, so you have to kind of make things really easy for them. So having those um, pan, um, those pan drinkers or the, the water available literally just in a, in a, a nice low-leveled pan is really fundamental. But you also want to make sure that that water – Sometimes I, I'll put marbles in the water because they're shiny, A, so it attracts the birds to that. 
Um, and then the second thing I'll do is I'll make sure that those um, those waters are always clean daily. Um, it's really important because we want to make sure that birds, that if they go poop in the water, that we're cleaning that out and we're not exposing the birds to any other uh, E. coli and salmonellas, for example, that could get some of the rest of the flock sick. Um, and then the other good thing about those, those marbles is sometimes birds actually have a tendency to drown in them. Even though there's not very much water in there, they'll literally fall face first in the water um, and they won't figure out how to move their head. Um, out of that. So the, the marbles also kind of prevent that. And I would keep them in there for at least a week or two, um, and that, that seems to address that kind of problem. So then on the feed side, again, I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on feeders. Um, I, some backyard people have been very creative, and there's these, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, these treadle or, or chook slash systems, um, where the birds um, learn to step on like a little panel, um, and that lifts up a, um, a lid on a feeder, and then the birds can eat from there. Um, the idea is that it's harder for rodents because rodents are a lot are a little lighter than um, than the birds. So if the rodent was creative or smart enough to actually step on that uh, on that paddle, they'd have to be a bunch of rodents working in coordination. So um, unless you had a, a really uh, effective team effort by rodents and, and or some really heavy rats, um, it's a, it's an effective way to prevent the birds from getting in those feeders. Um, but birds will be messy, so um, just realize that that's, like everything, it's not perfect, that you can still get spillage from the birds when they're eating. The big thing with, with feeders, the one thing I like about that, that treadle system is that it, it's a good way, um, if you keep your feeder outside at night, which I prefer not to do, um, but it's a good way to prevent, um, if it's just your personality where you're like, oh, I can't go out every night and put the feeder inside, um, but if it's your personality to kind of leave those feeders outdoors, then this is probably the, the next best, best option to prevent rodents from, from getting in there. Um, so this is a really creative option. Uh, the big thing is I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on, on feeders and waters as long as you keep them clean. The big thing with feeders, the, probably the most common mistake I see is you want the feeders, you want the height of the feeder to be at the height of the, um, of the head. So I see a lot of feeders that are really low, and that's just more work for the birds to get in there. Um, it's, it creates more of a mess. Um, so it's really important when you get feeders to get either legs um, or to get you know, cinder blocks or, or, or bricks or something that you can um, secure them to so those feeders are at the proper elevation as those birds are getting bigger. Because you want to make feeding, because it's so fundamental, um, you want to make feeding um, as easy as possible. Um, so like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not too picky on that. On, on the feed side, you know, in, in the commercial poultry world, there's a lot of different feeds. So you, in some layer birds, you'll have five to seven different rations. Um, in, the, in the backyard world, we just don't have those options. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, it just um, you know, the commercial world, feed is such an expensive cost. So the estimates are that 70 to 80 percent of the operating cost of a flock in the commercial poultry world are related to um, feed um, production and consumption. So you want to optimize that as much as possible so that the commercial poultry world is very uh, keen on that. So the, the, the big thing I would stress is that in the layer world, you really want to use um, a starter ration um, and a layer ration. And the starter ration is, is, is basically high in energy. Um, it's also high in protein. Um, the um, the ration needs to be, when you look at it, it, it needs to be, and, and, and this is all on the side of the bag, and it can be a little confusing to read, but in general, 
you know, think about that 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 this chick starter. These birds are going to be using this chick starter for about six weeks, so they're growing. Um, and to grow, they need not only energy, but they need protein. So the protein content of the starter feed um, is going to be as, as very high. It's going to be 20%, and they're also getting a lot of, of energy. So they've got a lot of soybeans in there for protein and a lot of corn in there uh, for energy. And it's really important to, um, to be aware that starter feed is not layer feed. So that, that problem does come up periodically. Starter feed has a much lower level of calcium. In fact, it's, it's about half as much the level of calcium is about 2.5% in a starter ration. And in a layer ration, for obvious reasons, because the shell has so much calcium in it, uh, the layer ration has about 5% calcium. There's a little wiggling around there that will be done by feed mills, um, but as long as it's in that range, that, that's, really, that's really important. Um, so going back to the starter ration, the one thing I really recommend um, is using a starter ration that is not organic. And the reason is, it's not that I'm against organic feeds or anything like that, but the reason is that the um, non-organic starter rations can have a, a drug in it called a coccidiostat. And we've probably talked about coccidia in the past, but coccidia is, is after um, Merix is the most common reason um, that young chickens be below, let's say, six to eight weeks die. Um, so these protozoal parasites, um, Imeria, which is a type or a species of coccidia, are very, very common in poultry environments. You can't really get rid of them. And they can cause a significant amount of mortality, so death, and they can also cause a lot of sickness um, that eventually leads to mortality. So it's really important to have these coccidia stats, which are not antibiotics. So I, I am I'm fully supportive of the uh, folks and the efforts that are being made to reduce antibiotic usage in food animals. There's, there's really good, strong science behind why we want to do that and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but the coccidiostats are a completely different class of drug. So when it comes to uh, utilizing those, we're, we don't have the their same risks as far as any type of resistance that we would be exposed to if we consumed um, any kind of um, coccidia. We just don't have the equivalent diseases in humans. We don't use the equivalent drugs to treat those diseases in humans, so it's, it's not really an issue in humans. Um, but it's really important for the bird health, and I, I really reiterate um, kind of focusing on that. Um, so then the other thing that you really want to think about is, is you want to add, um, some people argue for and against grit. Um, you can add grit if you're going to add it after the first week. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but if your birds are outside, um, I've done enough necropsies, which is just a fancy word for an autopsy. I've done enough necropsies on backyard birds um, and pastured birds and free-range birds to see a lot of uh, rocks in the bird's uh, stomach um, after, they've been, um, after, we, after we euthanize them. The point being that they get, those, they get the equivalent of that grit just in the environment. Um, so you can add grit. Um, I know some people are, are adamant about it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just not, in my opinion, necessary, just from um, some of the birds that I've um, done necropsies on. So then the only other big feed thing that you want to consider is our, our laying hens. Um, so you want to get them onto their laying ration about a week before they go into lay. So you want to start kind of piling up on their calcium. Um, so that's typically, and this is where it gets really hard with backyard birds, because you know, in the commercial world, we only have five or six different um, uh, strains or breeds of birds that we typically use from literally about two companies. Um, 
so we really understand on those birds when those birds go into lay. Now, with all the different kind of designer um, and, and different breeds of chicken, I mean, over 200 breeds of chicken, uh, 300 breeds of, 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 of chickens out there, it gets really hard to predict when each one's going to go into lay because you also have environmental factors, and um, a lot of it's based on weight, um, which predicts when they become sexually mature. So it does get challenging. So in general, I would suggest people starting to put birds on a layer ration just a little earlier, so maybe around 16 and a half weeks or so, um, uh, 16 weeks, and then just start waiting for egg production. If they if they wait a week or two to go into, into lay at that point, it's not the end of the world. You just don't want to put them on a layer ration too early um, because that's more calcium than they need, and that can cause um, some kidney disease problems um, if they're getting all that calcium because it's not being laid in the eggs yet. So that can be a little challenging. You don't want to start the, the layer feed right when they start producing eggs either because now their body's at a severe calcium deficiency, and they can, they're going to pull that calcium out from all kinds of places we don't want them to pull calcium from, including uh, their bones. Um, so you can have some problems that way too. So there can be a little, this is kind of where you, you this is where records really come in handy because if you know that the, the type of chicken that you, that you, that you, the type of layer bird that you purchase, if you know those birds typically go into lay at 17 weeks or 19 weeks, then you can kind of optimize from there. Um, and then the last thing I want to really say about, about, about feed is um, two things. First of all, and, and this goes to the biosecurity thing, and this goes also to, to husbandry, um, you want to keep the feed nice and clean. Easier said than done. Um, rodents and uh, other uh, larger wildlife uh, love chicken feed, just like the chickens do, um, but they have a tendency to poop where the food is, and that's a great way to spread disease. The other thing you really want to consider about, especially this time of year, is um, moisture. So uh, it is really fundamental to keep the feed dry um, because... Um, if there's any moisture in that feed, over time um, you can get mold, and a lot of those molds are toxic, and that can actually kill the birds. So, you know, again, on the husbandry side, having your feed in a nice dry shed um, that is rodent-proof is fundamental, and keep that feed um, only for about a month or two. Um, it's, it's, I, I know it's sometimes you, you just want to get six months of feed at a time, and some people will do that, but, but it's not ideal, um, and eventually it can, it can certainly kind of um, cause some problems. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is when your birds do go into molt um, around this time of year, um, fall to winter, um, it's really important to, to realize to, to keep them probably, it's probably best in, in the backyard world to keep those birds on a layer ration um, because um, not all birds in your flock might go into molt. Molting feeds are kind of hard to find for backyard flocks anyhow. So you really only have two choices. Do you want to put your backyard birds on a starter ration um, when they go into molt, or do you want to put them on a, on a layer ration? And my preference is to put them on a layer ration because um, all the birds are pretty much eating from the same feeder. So I don't want birds that are, that are in lay to get a starter ration uh, versus... Um, uh, birds that are molting, uh, getting a layer ration. The risk is greater if we have any birds that are producing eggs, like typically happens, at least in, from anecdotally from the folks that I, that I talk to. While egg production goes down, it usually doesn't completely stop. Um, so keeping them on a layer ration is probably the safest thing. You could separate out the birds that are in lay versus the birds that are not in lay and then try to find a molting ration, which I wouldn't be opposed to. 
Um, but that's a lot of work, and, and a lot of people don't um, always want to do that. And just anecdotally, when I talk to backyarders, when some birds are in molt and some are not in molt, um, if you put them on the layer ration, I haven't heard of any problems. Um, it's for a short enough period of time, six to eight weeks, that doesn't seem to cause any long-term um, disease issues as far as, um, as excess calcium. Um, so uh, any questions at this point? I know I've kind of talking a little too much maybe, but... <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just following along, actually taking a few notes uh, regarding that and, and the feed. And I had, you know, when you're talking about feed, and I was talking about, you know, the crumble versus the pellet and, and you know, versus the commercial. I found that kind of fascinating with the uh, commercial industry versus the backyard and the differences there with feed and whatnot. Good. So then the next thing I really want to talk about is when you're designing your coop. Um, so there's a lot of different coops out there, and people have these amazing coops. I mean, we have this thing in Davis called the Tour de Cluck, and uh, everyone rides around on their bikes, and they go to different uh, different coops, and they get to see all these different um, you know different designs. Some are really basic, some are are not so basic. But um, you know, the point is, I want to focus just on you know what materials you might want to consider, um, and the advantages and disadvantages to all of them. Um, so PVC pipe is a really good um, material to consider. It's light, it's relatively cheap, it's easily available, um, it's easy to work with using limited tools. Um, however, you know, the disadvantage is it's not particularly strong um, and it degrades with sun exposure. So um, PVC is great um, and it's a, uh, we, we do a lot of stuff on our UC Davis pasture poultry farm with PVC pipe, um, but over time that material does degrade and it's something to be aware of. Um, but it can work very well. It's easy to work with, and and um, you can you can you can you can buy it and find it uh, relatively easily. Wood is is still also like a really good material. Um, it's again, I, I would consider it relatively easy to work with. Um, it's the only di disadvantage of wood is that it's it's heavy. Um, it's not as weather resistant. Um, and and the problem is is if you treat it, if you pressure treat it to improve the weather resistance, you have issues of leaching. Um, so copper can leach out into the soil. Um, those effects on the flock and the eggs, we just don't understand yet. Um, and it's also the other issue with wood, unless you use latex-based paints, which I'm a big fan of, um, they're not easily cleaned and disinfected, disinfected. So I've had a lot of folks where, you know, you'll see what their backyard farms are, what their backyard coops are, and people love to use plywood. The disadvantage of plywood, as, as many of your listeners probably know, it's not particularly weather resistant. There is this masonry, masonry, masonry plywood, excuse me, um, which is also really good. But it's really expensive. So in lieu of that, if you um, if you are going to use plywood, make sure that it has these latex-based paints on them, um, because then they're really easy to clean and spray um, and to disinfect. So um, it's really important to do that because if you spray water or it just rains on that plywood, first of all, the, the wood is going to bow and um, you have the potential for mold in there, but also creates these great microenvironments for bacteria and things like that. Um, moving on to a couple other um, kind of um, coop um, construction options. So we talked about PVC pipe. We talked about wood, uh, aluminum. So aluminum we've explored. Uh, aluminum is really strong. Um, and it's um, the tubing is stronger than the conduit, so we've used the conduit, and the conduit's not ideal. But the conduit's also easier to work with. 
I just wouldn't use the conduit, um, in my opinion, for, for real structurally sound or really structurally important um, parts of your coop. Um, it's also really easily available. It's weather resistant. It's very light. So if, if, if you are going to be moving your coop around, um, almost the equivalent of like a pastured backyard type flock, which some people will do um, because they want to uh, utilize one part of their, their backyard and then um, let that, that grass grow up again and then move the coop to another place, aluminum is really important. Uh, is, 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 it should be considered, um, especially the structural tubing as opposed to the conduit. A little more expensive, um, but... Um, certainly worth exploring more. I don't see as many people use aluminum as probably they should be. Um, the other thing I don't see a lot of is steel, which is also really strong. Um, if it's galvanized, um, it has good weather resistance. So that's the thing that I've, I've seen people do is they don't always get the galvanized steel. Um, it's more expensive. There's more tools required, uh, more precision required. You know, wood, you can be off by, you know, an eighth of an inch or so or a quarter of an inch and, and you're fine. Um, with with uh, steel, um, any kind of metal work, you have to be a little more accurate. So that can be a little more challenging to work with, um, but it's it's certainly something to consider. And then and the reality is, you know, when you when you really think of your coop, if you're really trying to be creative here, um, it's it's what material do you want where? Um, you can imagine coops that have PVC pipe and wood, for example. Um, you can certainly imagine incorporating some aluminum, and some steel in it, and uh, that's for for all our our backyard engineering kind of comes in. Um, and there's a lot of stuff online um, that you can get some interesting ideas from, um, including our website, but there's also a lot of other websites. Um, other things you want to consider, you want to consider the, 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 the chicken access to the coop. Um, so there's some great um, automatic doors that are, that are accessible now. You can put them on timers. They're linked to PV um, solar panels, um, and they have great functionality. So in the morning, um, the, the door automatically opens up either based upon a uh, light or based upon some timer that you have. So those are great because now you don't have to open up the coop every morning. Um, they can be a little expensive. So just the prices that I've kind of priced out for some of these are $150 to $250 or so. Um, but they include the solar panel, the battery, and the wiring. Um, and they're, they're robust. They last for, for several years. We've, we've had some really good success with uh, a couple different brands or, or one specific brand, excuse me. Um, that's worked really well. Um, you, the, the other thing with those those coops, you can't um, have the door. So you don't want whatever you use. You just don't want your door open at night. Um, you want the birds to be safe and sound inside a coop. Um, you want them inside the coop. Um, remember that that 1.5 square feet per bird, uh, at least six inches six inches of perching space in there. Um, and most importantly, at some level, is you don't want those. You don't want any predators to get in there. Um, I think we've all seen it or heard stories about uh, uh, raccoons coming into a coop, uh, eating one bird and just destroying the rest of them, um, and it's, 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 it's kind of a brutal thing. So it's really important to make sure those doors are closed. And then to that point, understand what kind of predators you have. Um, so there are, if everyone knows what hardware cloth is, it's, it's this um, uh, half-inch by half-inch half kind of welded wire. Um, and that's a really great material to use instead of, you know, some of the other options as far as um, trying to keep uh, birds, or excuse me, birds inside and, and predators outside of your coop. Um, it could be a little more expensive than chicken wire, but the, the chicken wire really only kind of keeps the chickens inside. It doesn't do much when it comes to predator control. So those are really important things to kind of think about. Uh, the other thing is inside your coop, you want some roosting area. So the birds 
when they rest at night, they want to be able to roost. Um, you want to be able to give them roosting um, options probably at about four weeks or so. Um, there's actually a lot of good literature um, that shows that birds that are not giving, that, are not, that have not learned to roost by about four weeks, they actually have a lot more broken bones, uh, keel damage. Um, they, can, they can have a lot more injuries. So it's really important when you think about um, roosting that you give them those options nice and early. It's also interesting, you know, you're trying to stay away from these floor eggs for food safety reasons, for, you know, kind of efficiency reasons. You want these birds uh, laying the eggs in the nest boxes. Um, if, they, if you have um, birds that are learning to perch at a younger age, have fewer floor eggs. So it's certainly something to, um, to consider and um, kind of optimize when you're, as you're, as you're um, building your coop. And you want those roosting areas. In, in a perfect world, you want each bird to have at least six inches of, of, of roosting space. And you want the roosts away from the nest boxes because on those roosts they can poop. And you want those, those roosting bars nice and high. Um, because birds like to be nice and high. Um, and in a perfect world, all the birds have the same exact um, height of, of roosting bar um, because now all those birds can be – that higher spaces are, are, are kind of the, um, the boardwalk and the park place, I guess, of uh, using a monopoly reference of, of where these birds like to, uh, like to roost at night. And if you make them lower than the nest boxes – the potential is that they're going to try to use the nest boxes in one way or the other as a roosting bar. Um, and, and to that point, you want to, again, keep the roosting bars and the nest boxes away from each other because on the, on the roosting bars they will poop, and you don't want that poop to go down into the nest box. Um, so the roosting areas, you like kind of like a quiet um, place where, where the birds aren't bothered too much so they can do their business there. And then, again, you want to, going back to that lighting issue, in a perfect world, if you can have light um, that goes to the wall that leads up to those roosting, um, that leads up to, excuse me, to those nest boxes, that's a great way to attract your birds to those nest boxes and, and make it a little more appealing for them to lay the eggs in the nest boxes. It's a real problem in, in some parts of the developing world where we have chickens, but we just don't have always the, the resources to build nest boxes. And it is a real problem when, when birds are laying eggs and you literally have to go on a, on a you know, wild goose chase every morning to look for, you know, your 10 or 12 eggs. Um, so you want to make sure, you know, that those eggs are in a nice, clean nest box, that they're not cracked, that they're not damaged, that the birds aren't getting to them. So um, you can imagine having uh, nest boxes that are... Um, that have an angle to them, so when they lay their egg, it rolls down gently on straw um, into a uh, into an area where the birds can't get to, um, because birds will develop a taste for uh, for eggs over time if you leave them there for long enough. A um, couple other areas since we were talking about nesting areas, um, you want those boxes um, no larger than 10 by 10. So so typically what happens is if if you make those nest boxes a little too large all the birds end up going in that nest box. Uh, typically, you want a, a five-to-one ratio a maximum of, nest, of birds to nest box. Um, so you don't want, if you have six birds, in theory, then you would want at least two nest boxes. Um, so that's really important. It's interesting. There's a lot of weird behavior about what nest boxes birds like going to. Typically, they seem to like the corners. Um, so it makes sense, you know, they're, they're kind of in a vulnerable position and they're, they're a prey species. So you can imagine they kind of want to be in a, 
in a nice uh, kind of slightly darker area. Um, so again, with that lighting issue, you don't want too much lighting in the nest box. The bird won't go in the nest box, but you just want to attract the birds to the nest box and, 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 and let lighting at the wall is one way to, to do that. But you don't want the light kind of nice and bright in the nest box. That would not be ideal from a behavior perspective. And then, you know, the big thing is going to this whole uh, idea of protection from the environment and some of the, um, uh, if we're thinking about sunlight, for example, um, you know, roofing is, is better than, than non-roofing, um, and, and so the solid roofing is better than, than the hardware cloth. So some people will use hardware cloth all the way around the coop, which I'm not opposed to, but on the roof of that, then you should be considering um, how to put some type of tarp or shade structure the only problem with tarps and shade structures is they will they will degrade. So we're in, in the Central Valley in Northern California in Davis, um, and we get a lot of sunlight up here, and those, those tarps will degrade over time. So um, you just need to be aware that um, you might have to replace those a little more often on, on, a, on that type of roof as opposed to a, um, uh, as opposed to a solid roof. But if you're going to be moving your coop, um, which I think is becoming a little more common among backyard enthusiasts, just from anecdotal kind of evidence, um, having that um, that hardware cloth with the the tarps and shade is a really good option to consider. Um, and then the other thing is, um, if the coop's not elevated, so so birds like kind of going in in spaces where they feel safe. So a lot of times, birds like going underneath the coop. Um, I'm not opposed to that. The only thing I don't like is when um, there are non-solid floors because birds that are on top um, inside the coop can poop on the birds that are underneath the coop. Um, and that's a real risk um, from some of our previous research um, with respect to uh, salmonella um, exposure and, and presence in those birds. Um, so it's really important if you are going to give the birds underneath access that you do use some kind of solid floor. Solid floors in general are better. Um, all things being um, equal, because um, they can prevent uh, rodents from from getting inside from from the bottom, which is a common kind of source of of exposure. And then the other thing is going back to that that um, the, um, the 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 half inch by half inch um, welded wire. Um, it's really important to think about um, that 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 size is really important. You think half inch by half inch is is pretty small, but mice can get through that. They're very they're very clever and very um, they're just easy to get through that. Um, and then the last thing I really want to talk about is, is well, not the last thing, but one of the last things I really want to talk about is, is make your coop. If you, if you buy a coop or you're making a coop or you're making modifications to your coop, make it ergonomic. So make it to where it's easy for you to get inside, it's easy for you to collect eggs. So those are the things, those are probably at some level the most important things because if it's hard to clean, um, how often are you going to clean it? If it's really a pain to kind of climb in there or you have to lift it up to, to clean the bottom, those are going to be really hard yep. things to do. So the ergonomics the, is so uh, essential. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. In every workshop, I, I, as far as coops, priority number one, of course, predator-proof. If you're going to spend the money, um, if you're on a limited budget, put it into that coop, making it Fort Knox um, because that's the last resort. Um, to protect your birds. You know, you may have a privacy fence around your yard, and then within that you have the run, and then within that you have the coop. So filter that money into the coop as far as being predator-proof. And then I completely agree regarding, you know, number two, I always say, number two, how easy it is to clean. And, and I love that is when I say, look, you know, um, if it's not easy to clean, you will not clean it as often as you should, and that's not fair to your birds. And so I 100% 
completely agree uh, with that, Doc. How about, and, and this has come up several years ago and doesn't come up often, but initially <coughs> we were building coops. I've, I've never done this. I've decided against it. But um, initially I had ordered some coops uh, from an Amish company up in Pennsylvania, got them, and uh, I had my choice of roof. And uh, at the end of the day, I wish I'd have gone with the metal roof versus the asphalt shingle roof, but uh, we had reasons why we went with the asphalt uh, shingles. And after the fact, I had initially thought, well, maybe I should have gone with the metal roof because then I would have felt better collecting rainwater <coughs> Pardon me, for, uh, for the birch water. And then after further investigation on biosecurity, then I've decided really 100% against all of that because just of the biosecurity issue, you know, you have other birds that land on the roof, they'll poop on the roof, birds flying over, um, and then the water washes down the roof and washes in all the other bird, wild bird poop, or whatever may else be up on the roof into your water collection for your chicken waterer. So um, has has your university or, have, you know, have you all done any studies on maybe that risk, if the, the risk isn't warranted regarding that, or do you, have you seen more folks going that route in the sustainable um, realm of, oh, I want to be sustainable and collect rainwater anyway to run our plants and blah, blah, blah. Um, what, what say you on, on that um, water collection? No, that's a great, that's a great question, Andy. So um, nothing formally that we've actually, we haven't looked at that, at that issue, but there, um, mm -hmm. I can tell you just from my own experience, I'll, I'll get a lot of producers that call, and I had one producer uh, call in California who was really keen. On, they, they were getting their water from the lake, um, and um, we were noticing, among other things, uh, some issues related to coliobacillosis, which is just a fancy word for E. coli infection, and uh, they weren't treating their water, and that's especially a problem this time of year um, because we get so many waterfowl that are moving mm -hmm. into, you know, kind of habitat in North America as opposed to, or in the, in the southern part of North America, which is the United States, as opposed to, you know, the Arctic and Canada, for, for example. So um, that's a real problem, um, and, and, and especially because a lot of that water is pretty still um, in those right. ponds. Um, you can get a lot of, of disease there. So that water needs to be treated uh, if you are going to collect that water. And then the other issue to the kind of toxicology kind of angle is like, okay, let's say you're collecting water off of your roof. Um, those shingles, um, you can imagine there's a lot of dust and, and particulate matter in those shingles. Um, you really wonder, unless you're going to filter that through some kind of charcoal filter, um, you wonder what ends up in that water. And this is really important for food animals um, because um, obviously what they eat and what they drink ends up in our eggs. There's a lot of really fascinating research related to lead right now in urban environments mm -hmm. um, that ends up in blood and eggs of backyard chickens. Um, so that's something you should most definitely have have checked also. But that 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 whatever washes off the roof can be a really big issue, and we just don't know that yet. I mean, I I, I think it's fascinating how we spend so much of our of our food safety dollars on infectious diseases, E. coli, Salmonella, uh, Campylobacter, and that's great, and you know that's kind of where my focus is. But you know, toxicology just doesn't get the attention it probably deserves at this point. And it's, there's a lot of unknowns in that area. Got it. Yeah, just um, it, it's not mentioned a whole lot, but occasionally it is, and, and wanted to you know mention that regarding the uh, water collection and whatnot. But yeah, the, the yeah, it makes sense with the the bird flu. <coughs> Pardon me, the bird flu and the migratory birds and uh, waterfowl and things like that. Yeah, it makes sense. A lot of people, like I think, will have good intentions. Oh yeah, I can uh, use the water out of this creek or the pond or collect it off the roof and be 
you know, really green and, and, and um, sustainable, but may not be the best thing for your birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Any other thing you wanted to wrap up with? No, you know, the only other thing I wanted to mention is, is, and I think there, I, I would have a potentially really good guest for you, is that when you are trying to assess, you know, how how well am I doing? Um, you know, there's all that data that, that we talked about, but the other thing that, that that I think would be really fascinating, and I think people um, kind of don't um, appreciate, is you can do some some very simple welfare assessments of your flocks. So, you know, looking for external parasites, looking for keel bone abnormalities, looking for foot pad abnormalities. Um, looking for uh, any kind of respiratory discharge, uh, comb abnormalities, or, 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 or any type of vent lesions, because sometimes those are consistent with um, um, pecking order type issues or nutrition issues. So those type of things can be really easily assessed in, a, in, in basically a welfare assessment. Um, and that's a great way to understand, you know, are the husbandry practices that I'm doing in the coop, are they leading to positive outcomes, or for some reason am I getting more foot pad dermatitis, and that's causing all kinds of, of, of other issues um, related to welfare? Am I getting um, more issues related to respiratory disease, or am I getting any issues related to any kind of vent lesions that typically can happen uh, from birds fighting each other, for example, or cannibalistic behavior sometimes? So, you know, that's the kind of data that, that you know, we haven't really kind of highlighted that much, but, um, you know, we have some really good people in our lab that can certainly comment on that. I could certainly do it, but um, I, I think there's some really good resources that we could uh, that we could certainly discuss um, in addition to some of the things we've talked about today, uh, like lighting and toxicology. I need to have um, Richard on, and I'm over at my magazine now. I want to say his, uh, your colleague of yours, is it... Uh, Blatchford. Uh, Blatchford. Blatchford, Blatchford, exactly. Blatchford, yeah. hey, and I have gone over the ma- magazine to get his last name, but um, I remember we had lunch uh, at an expo, and we were talking, and he and he talked about, and you mentioned it several times on the show today, and I'd love to have him write an article um, again for the magazine and even come on the show about that keelbone um, issues, and yes. you can fill in the blank there. But he, he had a, uh, um, a number that was staggering to me, because if I got on, <coughs> pardon me, I'm getting over cold. Um, if, if I got on any kind of chicken blogger forum, I think today, um, with everything I see for over a decade, and, and start mentioning about keelbone, a lot of folks, well, well, what's what's the keelbone or what's that or you know, that, then they will first off they'd be like, I've never even heard of that. But to let alone, his numbers were staggering. I mean, it was by far, when I say majority, a high majority of backyard um, birds, backyard chickens, uh, had that they looked at, studied, had a, a high rate of heel bone, uh, and I can't, whether it was deformity or breakage or issues or all the above. Um, and, and we talked about that being, you know, what could cause that. <coughs> Pardon me. Are the roosts too high? Uh, are they not putting enough bedding on the floor when they jump down? Um, they're getting, and their heel bones are getting injured regarding that. But I've got to get him on or to have also write an article uh, about that, because he had uh, a lot of information that was done through scientific study about that, and I was um, um, surprised, slash impressed, um, shocked that uh, the backyard birds, that the, the, by far the majority, had issues with their keel bones. And um, I got to have him on. He had mentioned it several times, and it reminded me to reach out to him again, and because that's something I guarantee you. I even mentioned that, and the majority will be like, "Oh, what's that?" or, "What, what, what you know, never heard of that," or "You've never even heard of a keelbone problem before." So, 
Got to make note of that and get that taken care of today. Yeah, he'd be great. He'd be a great guest. He would write a, a very, um, you know, insightful article also. So that's a that's a great choice. Yep, I had him. He wrote an article in the Winter Magazine, which folks is out now. You can go look at that at ChickenWhisperMagazine.com, and his article and that was uh, all about um, dust bathing and dust baths. And and the reason why I'm having to write that article was because when we talked about the, the by far the majority of people, not not that this is not 100% true, but the majority of people I talked about uh, at that same lunch was, hey, they dust bathe to control and eliminate parasites. And he said, you know, we've got extensive studies now that show that's really not the case. Um, and so that, that was, again, shocking and, and something that would rock the community because that's just what you always hear. Oh, dust baths, eliminate parasites and control parasites of the birds. And um, it's just, it's his, it was fascinating the kind of rock in the boat, if you will. That's why I like it and uh, these studies and why I like to have you know, him on and you on. To, again, if you want to call it rock the boat, just from the, the mundane, this is what we always hear. And then here's, well, not so fast. Here's some uh, interesting uh, studies we have that show that that may not be the case or may not be or may just be a small portion of why they do this uh, lifestyle activity or what have you. So uh, it's just fascinating, fascinating things are happening. Yep, that's the fun part of science is, uh, like you said, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on. Another great show. And uh, don't you worry one bit about the, the topic issue. I'll just, it won't take me five minutes to get back in and just change the uh, topic on the uh, podcast when it becomes available uh, later today. That won't be a problem. We'll get that taken care of. And maybe, uh, again, next month we'll look at, it'll be even closer to the time people will start doing that. Uh, talking to uh, incubation and chick rearing. Okay, sounds good. So, all righty. Well, hey, thank you very much for uh, coming on today. Um, Dr. Maurice Pateski, guest on the show, also writes for the magazine and was a huge contributor to the Factor Chicken Poop book that looks like it will be out the day after Christmas. So thank you very much, Maurice, for joining us. We'll see you next month, and uh, have a wonderful holiday, Christmas, New Year's, whatever you celebrate. hope you and your family have a great one. Great. Thanks, Andy. You too. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All righty, folks. Awesome show. Um, and, and, again, um, apologize about the uh, mix-up in topic. Not a big deal. I'll change that on the podcast. Nobody, nobody will know the difference. But um, we'll look at doing the incubation and the chick rearing, maybe a little brooding involved in that uh, for uh, January. So that will be great. We're looking to pushing into 2018, which will be our – I think it'll be our thing to show. I'm going to have to go back and look at the very first episodes we did back on AM radio. Um, and I think that was 2009, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16, 18, 18. Uh, yeah, a ninth or 10th year of this show. A thousand, uh, this, this happened to be episode 1,118. And all of those are available for you to listen to uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So uh, remember, chickenwhisperermagazine.com, chickenwhisperer.com, and the new Chicken Factor Chicken Poop book, which blows all kinds of things out of the water <coughs> that you may have read or seen on chicken blogs and chicken forums. Be out on the 26th of December. You can pre-order now on Amazon and uh, make a copy of that book cover, stuff it in the stocking and then it will ship out as soon as it's available. So uh, y'all have a fabulous, uh, let's see, do we have another show? Yeah, yeah, we got another show before Christmas. I'll just look at my calendar. It looks like next Thursday uh, Dr. McRae will be here, and we may be talking about raising turkeys 
for me. So uh, y'all have a fabulous day, and we will see you next time here on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by our good friends over at Combock Feeds. Combock. Combock, buck. Combock. Combock. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. How would you like to sleep in on the weekends without having to get up early to let your chickens out? Or not have to rush home after eating dinner to shut your chickens in for the night? And who's had the unfortunate surprise that a raccoon, possum, or fox got to your chickens because you forgot to close the coop? Well, your days of worrying have come to an end. Introducing the Chicken Guard Automatic Chicken Coop Door Opener. Working off either the timer or light sensor, Chicken Guard automatically opens your coop door in the morning to let the girls out and shuts it at night to keep them safe. Tried and trusted by over 40,000 users worldwide. Buy Chicken Guard online at chickenguardian.com or your local farm and feed store. That's chickenguardian.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. 
Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. 